I'm uh, so f***ing excited. I am, too. Although I think I'm going to be seeing everything ever all at once tomorrow instead of the Northman. Because uh, I haven't seen oh, it Oh, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> I assume that's stuck in your head. Uh, Spoilers. Cool. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg. Nothing particularly exciting to say to describe myself today. Uh, Joining myself, as always, is my co-host. Martha Sullivan, and in this universe, I'm a librarian, but in (laughs) other universes, who knows? You, You are everything, eventually. Correct. Yes. Great. Uh, Well, in this universe, we are talking about optimistic sci-fi. That is various sci-fis looking at the near future that have a relatively optimistic read on things. Dystopian future is the norm. We're trying to break that mold a little bit. Uh, But before we get into that, it's only fair to share with you, our listeners, what is stuck in our heads. That is literally whatever piece of pop culture Martha and I want to be talking about, uh, sharing with each other, sharing with you. Uh, So, Martha, what is stuck in all of your universe's heads right now? Uh, Well, I had a free day in the middle of the week the other week. um, Nice. And I decided at one o'clock in the afternoon to take a break from the process of moving and go see everything everywhere all at once. Um, I was one of like three people in the theater and Mm. we all sat appropriately spaced. So it was very nice. Um, It's incredible. It was the kind of movie where I was almost afraid to see it because everybody had been saying so many good things about it. And I was Mm. like, oh man, I hope this isn't going to get ruined by hype. Um, It wasn't. And it was also the kind of movie that was so visually dense, Mm. visually and emotionally dense that I wanted to watch it again as soon as it was over. You're Um, you're not the only one who's said similar things uh, to me about it. About like, as soon as it's over, it's like, another ticket, please. Michelle Yeoh is incredible, obviously. Um, Kehue Kwan is also incredible. Um, he, th- I, I think that he actually has kind of the most interesting job to do in the movie because he plays like a couple of different versions of himself that he has to swap in, in and out of like while the camera is on him. And so mm. like the way that he carries himself, the way that he, he carries his he has to change like it it has to be obvious to you the viewer that he is a different person with nothing more than like facial cues sure sure. um but yes it is it was everything that i wanted it to be um if you feel safe to do so i highly recommend seeing it um yeah i just I, i really loved it and i can't stop thinking about it Nice. Uh, That makes me even more excited. I should, in theory, be seeing it tomorrow, a.k.a. when this episode drops, if you're listening to it, and we've gotten this episode out on time, then that would be today. Uh, I haven't locked that in yet, but that is the hope. Uh, And I, everyone I talk to who has seen it has said reviews as glowing as yours, Martha, or even more so, if that's possible. So 
uh, I'm really looking forward to it. What's stuck in your head? Uh, well, what's stuck in my head is uh, back uh, around my birthday, I gave myself a little birthday gift, which was I finally got around to buying Witcher 3 The Wild Hunt on Switch, uh, a.k.a. Switcher. Yeah. Um, I've never played a Witcher game because I've never had a system that could, you know, play it. Um, and I've been thinking about buying this game since season one of The Witcher came out. Uh, and I watched it and I enjoyed it. I'm like, oh, it's for the Switch. And then I did some deep dives and all the reviews were like, it is an amazing port of an incredibly powerful game onto a non-powerful platform. The Switch is famously not as powerful as the other contemporary consoles uh, in terms of graphics, processing power, all the rest of it. So then I sort of went back and forth on like, do I want it if it's not going to look as good, whatever. And then I realized, Pete, you have never been, like, all the video games that you play are, <clears throat> you know, Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, that sort of stuff where graphics don't matter. Or games that are already 10 years old when you're playing them. Or, like, the remastered Skyrim on Switch. You have never been the one chasing the best graphics out there. So suck it up and go play Witcher on Switch. Um, and I have been, and it's been great, and that's why I've done no reading in the past month. Because uh, all of my free time is devoted to uh, just playing playing Witcher. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, See, I I played Witcher 3 on the Xbox, and I really, really loved it. And when it came out on Switch, I picked it up from the library because my philosophy is generally I want to be playing everything on the Switch all the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't love the controls. Mm. Um, I had a really hard time just with the way that the controls mapped to the, the Switch. And sure. I don't know if it was because I had already played it with the Xbox controller or what. I but... have heard that the controls are less than optimal on the Switch. Um, <clears throat> and I've, I've certainly had a few moments where I'm like, uh, mm, uh, but this being the only version of it I've played, I don't have a comparison point. So I'm like, I don't know, this is fine. I am also kind of notoriously and self-described bad at video games. Mm -hmm. So part of it may just also be that I already wasn't very good at it. So if you made the controls a little bit more, like a little bit less intuitive, a little bit more difficult, then I just sort of fell apart completely. <laughs> I definitely had the problem of like, I, I had only like I, I bought it and then I had like 45 minutes to start playing it. And the first 45 minutes are basically just you watching cutscenes and then learning combat tutorials and then watching more cutscenes. So by the time yeah, I like, you kind of you kind of need a couple hours to like get and, going in that one. That's that's what I realized. And luckily it's what I anticipated. So like when I came back two days later and was able to actually play for two hours in a row, I was like, okay, by the end of these two hours, I feel comfortable about what I'm doing. But that was rough Fantastic. there at the beginning when I had no memory. Yes. Like, when it's like, cool, I just watched a 45-minute movie and controlled Geralt for, like, five minutes of it. Uh, and I've already forgotten all the controls. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm doing a lot of side quests and just sort of leveling up to make everything easier. Because that's my philosophy on games in general. Well, I, and I will tell you, nobody finished. Nobody truly like can be said to have finished The Witcher Three. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like. <laughs> I am doing a lot of side quests. I am not doing every side quest, and I refuse to get into playing Gwent, uh, because that is just me a too. Whole, that's a whole lot. Like, <laughs> I'm playing a video game. I don't want to be playing a card game. 
Mm-hmm. So that'll, correct. That'll save some time at least. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my like it, it's my Pokemon philosophy of like, listen, I need to be at least level sixty by the time I face the Elite Four, so I can just stomp them. Um, so like, oh, the suggested level for this area is fifteen. Cool, I'm gonna be like level twenty by the time I show up there. Uh, See, I was not paying attention to recommended levels for areas, so I would just go charging off after mm. a little quest marker, <laughs> and then usually get like beaten down by some sort of bog witch like, <laughs> oh you thought there were definitely some things where i'm like i don't know this is a horse ride away i'm sure everything's fine roll into town every enemy icon is like red skull and crossbones i'm like oh run away run away also my last comment about the witcher 3 is that it is truly a game that makes me think that people who put weapon degradation in their games as a mechanic are bad people and they should feel bad i 100 percent agree with the exception of uh breath of the wild um i i knew you were gonna say that and i still disagree and here's the thing i think weapon degradation in breath of the wild is infuriating and annoying but it does make you play around with different weapons um which is interesting in that game in Witcher, because the weapons are all, like, deeply statted, the degradation is stupid. Like, it, it's, not, it's not an incentive for you to, like, pick up the big sword or the little sword or whatever. Or, like, get the master sword that regenerates. It's just like, oh, you got the really cool sword. Well, it's going to start sucking after a while, and then you have to pay gold to fix it. Haha. Well, and that's, I think, the biggest difference between Breath of the Wild and this one is that in Breath of the Wild, you're not expected to be able to fix your stuff. Right. And in The Witcher, they're like, well, hope you have a kit or can find the blacksmith in this town. Otherwise, you screwed. Yep, yep. It, it very much feels like a way of just like, all right, we don't have a good way to balance gold. So we're going to make you spend gold on this thing, on this like routine maintenance so that you're not just walking around with all the gold. Um, Truly, that is the reason that I stopped playing the first time was because all of my weapons were destroyed and I was in a town where I could not find the blacksmith. How, I've never had a weapon go below 50% because I am mon every time I'm in town, which is all the time, I'm like, blacksmith, weapons, please. Armor, please. Great. Go go into a dungeon. Wait, Come back out. Fix my weapons, attention? please. First of all, I don't wasn't paying that close attention. <laughs> Second of all, I didn't go into towns very much because I was like, towns don't have monsters for me to kill. Mm, but they have people to sell your stuff to and then blacksmiths to take your hard earned coin and fix your weapons with. It's a vicious cycle. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, speaking of vicious cycles, uh, we're going to take a quick break. That had That's a terrible transition, but I'm keeping it in. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, a couple of optimistic, not utopian, but optimistic sci-fi stories. So stick around. Absolutely not. Absolutely not utopian. No, 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 no. <laughs> We are back. Uh, so today we are talking about optimistic sci-fi, 
And we've got two very different uh, things for you. One is Guillermo del Toro's, one might say, masterpiece, Pacific Rim. Uh, and the other is a book, Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future. Uh, we're going to start off with Pacific Rim. So, Martha, this was your homework assignment. Lay it on us. Uh, Pacific Rim is a movie that was made in 2013 by artistic visionary Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it is about how in the year... Oh, when do they start arriving? 2013. Go after one under the direction of Idris Elba's major stacker Pentecost. Uh, <laughs> during the combat, oh, during the combat, Yancey is killed, which is remarkable, or which is important because the robots that are created to fight the monsters need to be piloted by two people in mind meld with each other because the robots are huge, and piloting them takes a huge mental strain uh there is more than a little bit of evangelion in the dna of this movie oh you think maybe just a little bit (laughs) (laughs) um so as the uh as the size and scale of the monster or kaiju attacks increase uh the jaeger the robot or jaeger program uh becomes to be considered more and more um it's like too expensive, not effective enough. Uh, the world decommissions the Jaeger program and instead puts their uh, coins on building a coastal wall in between uh, the world and the ocean. This works about as well as you'd expect. I, you say Raleigh, this out loud. I'm like, wait, were they building coastal walls on every coast? That seems like a lot. At least, at least around the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, yeah I, well, one might call it the Pacific Rim. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, so Raleigh gets recruited by Stacker for one last mission where they're going to toss a nuclear bomb into the breach. Uh, Raleigh meets Mako Mori, who is going to be his co-pilot. They connect in a way that is very, very cute. Uh, things do not go as expected. There is a side story with Charlie Day and um, Ron Perlman where Charlie Day... Uh, mind melds with a piece of kaiju brain in order to see their ultimate plan things go poorly for him and even worse in the sequel (laughs) Uh, and i just want to shout out ron perlman Uh, named hannibal chow uh because everyone's name in this is a plus well and he actually tells you where his name comes from he named himself after his favorite historical figure and his second favorite szechuan restaurant in brooklyn yes yes indeed (laughs) (laughs) everyone else presumably has the name that they were born with (laughs) which is incredible everyone else was named stacker pentecost (laughs) um but yes so we get an international team of jaeger pilots from russia china australia and the u.s um they are one by one knocked out during the fight until finally the only ones left are uh raleigh and mako and then stacker and um the young hotshot from Australia who ultimately have to drop the bomb into the breach and 
tragically tragically die while they uh in their last bid to save humanity sacrifice themselves um, for the greater good we think raleigh is going the same way but the explosion from the bomb actually ends up pushing him up out of the breach so that he and mako get to end the movie after they save humanity on a little raft in the middle of the pacific ocean doing a very cute forehead touch <laughs> Um, I love this movie. This is uh, unironically one of my top five movies ever made. You, um, you every forgot... time I watch it, it gets better. <laughs> you you forgot one of the best parts of this movie, which is at one point, uh, uh, while they're piloting the Jaeger, uh, I think it's Mako, presses a button that says sword, and then a giant sword, chain sword, comes out of the Jaeger's arm, and then they cut the kaiju in half with it. And it is... There's that, there's there's elbow rockets. Yeah, this is, unironically, an incredible film. Yes, it, it gets a 4.9 out of 5 only because the name of the American Jaeger is racist in a really um, unnecessary way. Also, um, it was a, like, Charlie Hunnam is good in this, but it was definitely a, like, we're trying to make Charlie Hunnam happen, and he's just not gonna happen. See, I like him in this movie. He fits in this movie a lot better than he fits into Crimson Peak. Um, which was Who just does a he play in Crimson Peak. A movie I've seen Have you recently. Never... No, I've seen it. I I rewatched he... it recently. Oh, he plays the other guy. He plays the the eye doctor who's in love with um Oh, yeah, he's a nobody yes. in that movie. Like I mean, like he's he's a main character, but he left no impression on me. And he's no, because yeah, because the roles that he were was meant to play were like giant robot piloting, like jock bro. Yeah, and apparently he's big in Sons of Anarchy, and I I could I could buy him as a son of anarchy. Um. Um. But yes, I I think that this movie is a hair's breadth away from being perfect, and the reason that I picked it for this um, assignment is because. A couple of things that I really like about it. One, the the end of the world stuff is both humanity's fault, but also not. Like, Charlie Day has a, a little monologue after he's seen inside the brains of the kaiju, and he's like, because of what we've done environmentally to the world, we've basically made this, like, the perfect environment for the kaiju. So they were just waiting like for us to, we, like... We've terraformed the Earth for them already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, they are giant monsters who are attacking us. <laughs> so, um, and then I, I like that we have, um, we have people that are very explicitly coming from all over the world to work together on this absolutely bananas plan. Um, it is a, a really... A really diverse cast. I'm a little bummed that our like our main character has to be a cis white jock bro, but like everyone around him, and arguably everyone around him is like explicitly better than he is at he, everything. I mean, he was able to pilot his Jaeger back home alone, which like he's the only one who's real. I guess like him and you know Idris Elba are kind of the only two who've been able to do that. 
but you know but he is also at every turn he's like mako is better than me in every way like his deep appreciation for her is so good i mean i i am um, not i'm not arguing about that at all because of his experience he is better at handling the drift than she is at first but once they like lock in you know and mind meld properly and stuff then it's like yeah mm-hmm. but but even before that it's like well she's gonna be my she's my co-pilot because she's awesome like yeah. almost, almost from the get-go he's like well she's great yeah she 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 is she is it um but yeah i love that this movie like manages to get everybody from different places united in trying to solve the problem but also in like a subversive way so like the big world governments are like oh this isn't going to work we're going to build this stupid wall and idris elba is like mm, f you going to do this anyway and he is right so we get a little bit of the like scrappy revolutionary fighters um but also it is a bunch of people from a bunch of different places coming together to solve this huge world problem of the world mm-hmm. and and they do yeah <laughs> like yeah. that's the other thing <laughs> and and obviously the big... they, they, they do with an asterisk because there is a sequel and then an anime show on netflix <laughs> Um, so I've seen the sequel. I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the anime. I've seen the sequel and it is both, it manages to be both not as bad as I'd been afraid of. And also just very disappointing. I've seen the anime Um, and I don't know if I've seen the sequel now that I'm thinking about it. It's got John Boyega in it and he's fabulous. Yeah. Um, He's, he is very charismatic. It just, and, and the, the plot actually is interesting as fallout from this one like there are things that happen in the first one that have that end up having very severe consequences in the second one Mm -hmm. um i don't think it looks as good it's not as fun like you can really tell that it was not a del toro production sure um i don't think it, it does not have the reverence for the like inspirational material that this one does like this this has godzilla and evangelion and like Gundam baked into its veins in a way that I, as an anime teen, <laughs> deeply appreciate. I, I will say, after having watched this, I'm like, I, I have not seen Evangelion since high school, but every time I watch Pacific Rim, I'm like, should I rewatch Evangelion? <laughs> don't rewatch. Don't rewatch it. Watch the new cuts that that they put out. Like, there are three or four movies that the studio basically like took the the ideas and some of the original material and recut them into sort of a different version of that story. So if I was you, I would not go back to the original stuff. I would watch the newer versions. Okay. Okay. Assuming I end up doing I think this. They're on, I think they're all on I think they're all on Prime. Okay. Um but yeah, so like this has all of the stuff. I mean, I have Mothra tattooed on me. Like I am a, <laughs> I am a, I am, a I'm a giant girl. monster person. Yeah. If I lived in this world, I would be like, like Charlie Day would be my friend in this, <laughs> if I lived in this world. Um, so this this movie is kind of composed of elements that are designed to make me love it, but also it's just a really well crafted movie about people being heroic and good and good to each other 
Like there's so much sacrifice for not even for the greater good, but like for people that we care about. Like when um when Raleigh sends uh Mako up in the escape pod so that he can manually eject the bomb into the breach, mm-hmm. like it is so that he can save the world, but it's also so that he can save Mako. And I yeah. think it achieves that balance of like saving individuals and also saving like the macro world. Like there like there's no point saving the world if we can't save each other too. Is sort of Exactly. It is this. very yeah. It is very um Rose Tico from The Last Jedi. Like Yeah. We're saving what we love instead of destroying what we hate. Yeah, yeah. And as you said earlier, this is definitely a like all nations come together to confront a, um, you know, a, a, totally blanking on the phrase I'm looking for here, but a, a, like, apocalyptic threat. Um, and that's, yeah. that's yeah. great, and we, and we love to see that. I will say that the one, like, it has been, re- like, you know, there's climate change references here, and there's, you can read a climate change analogy onto this. The problem with doing climate change analogies with pacific rim is the same problem of climate change analogies that um uh don't look up ran into which is that one of them is a clear is a is a sudden event and a clear like ah giant monster destroyed sydney uh let's fight giant monsters whereas climate change is a slower and more like insidious and not equally distributed uh, you know, it's a lobster's uh, or frog frog being boiled alive kind of situation. Um, For sure, where, where and I do frog? think that I do think that Charlie Day's monologue about how they are attracted to our planet because of what we've done through pollution and climate change. I think that monologue is doing a lot of work here. Yeah, and, and also, like, I should be fair. I don't know if Del Toro created this movie as a like global warming monologue or um, uh, you know, uh. Oh, I'm just blanking on every important word I want, uh, <laughs> uh, like parable or analogy. Um, but it is one that could be read into it fairly easily with the big asterisks of like big, cli- big Armageddon events don't actually track well for global warming uh, analogies. Well, again, we do have a character that very explicitly says right. these monsters are here because, because of, of what we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anything else? Yeah, I just, I just kind of want to put a button on the fact that, like, this movie does have a lot of nations coming together to solve a bigger problem, but they're doing it under, they're not doing it under the auspices of their government. They're doing it in mm. spite of the auspices of their government. Like, right, because the we have program, a bunch of different, like the the Yeager program a, was like a UN program originally, but what? Uh, Commander Pentecost, whatever, um, Marshall, Marshall, uh, Marshall, Marshall Pentecost is doing is like kind of extra legal. Yeah. So like the, the, the Jaeger program initially is a global initiative and then the world leaders decide to shut it down and the bulk of our action takes place with a like off the board Jaeger program. Yeah. Right. It's like, this is the, the the four Jaegers we could scrape together and, and yes. pilots and then like, and also hundreds of crew to support them. But like, it's all, we're, we're scraping the bottle, the bottom of the barrel here. 
Yeah, Raleigh has a line where he's like, but I wasn't your first choice when Pentecost comes to recruit him. And Pentecost is like, all the other pilots are dead. (laughs) (laughs) Technically, you are my first and only. Don't ask why. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to point that out and so that we have it kind of in our minds as we move on to our next piece of homework. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, and I, I... That is a a point of discussion that we will definitely be getting into after we talk about the next piece of homework. Um, So I assigned uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future, a Martha, cover your ears, cli-fi novel published in 2020. (laughs) Um, uh, Very interesting. So the the broad sweep of the book is that it follows two main characters— uh, Mary Murphy, the head of the titular Ministry for the Future, which is a UN organization tasked with representing uh, future humans and life in general, um, sort of throughout the world, uh, at like being being their advocates in a world that's very now oriented. Uh, and then the other main character that we follow is Frank May, an American aid worker who um, was traumatized after surviving a uh, incredibly deadly heat wave in India that killed tens of millions of people. He was the only survivor of the entire town that he was helping. Um, and it sort of follows them over the course of decades as the Ministry for the Future is doing what it can to basically combat global warming and fix, you know, have have a habitable world for future generations. Um, it is told through a variety of materials um so you you have chapters about mary murphy and about um frank but you also have many anonymous chapters written by people who uh survived the flooding of la survived a massive drought in um south africa were emerald miners in uh, nairobi uh you know all the rest and they they appear for a chapter and they tell their story and then they're gone always from a first person's perspective uh, we also have socratic dialogues uh we have um riddles poems about photons uh it's like a hundred chapters because each chapter is no more than like two pages um and so it's it's really a a multi-source vision of the next 30 to 40 years of of what human history could be um kim stanley robinson is a a very long in the tooth and famous sci-fi author he's written the uh red mars green mars blue mars trilogy uh the years of rice and salt uh most recently he's been getting into a lot of climate fiction um doing a lot of far future stuff and this was his attempt to do sort of a bridge novel from like yeah, it's like he's written books about titled 2312 about the year 2312. This is his like, all right, so how do we get there? Um, he is a it is will probably come as no surprise to you. He's a dyed in the wool leftist. Um, and uh, one of his uh, advisors, uh, university advisors, um, coined the term. Uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that ethos very much suffuses this book, um, uh, along with his his very lefty, uh, you know, ethos and credentials in general. Um, it's an optimistic book. Uh, the reason I chose it is because I think it it presents and portrays a lot of 
possibly viable, but certainly worth thinking about solutions to the climate crisis, uh, none of which are silver bullets, but all of them together might actually result in achieving, you know, reductions in CO2 emissions, in, in rising temperatures, things like that. Um, it's definitely a hard science book and a hard economics and sociology and all the rest of it, philosophy, yada yada book. Uh, but it being an optimistic book, I do... I definitely had the takeaway at times of just being like, this is unrealistically optimistic. Um, and perhaps to foreshadow what we're going to be talking about later, uh, near the end of the book, um, chapter 94, uh, we're sort of getting a tour through the, you know, there's a big climate conference as we have achieved many of our goals. We're finally getting a drop down on CO2 emissions, all the rest of it. So we're just having a walkthrough of the hall of all the cool things and solutions that are happening and that have worked. And as I, I, I listened to it on audiobook, uh, which I would highly recommend, um, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, I have more faith that we could build giant mechanical Jaegers than that we could do what is being laid out in this, in this chapter right here. Um, and that is very dispiriting <laughs> to realize. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think that it is so important to have books like this and the reason why I wanted to have this as a topic and assign this book specifically is because it's so easy to be pessimistic and dystopic about the future that I think that it's very important to have works that um, present positive alternatives. And even though it's like borderline unrealistic to impossible that like these outcomes will be achieved, it's important that someone is presenting them as achievable outcomes with potential solutions to get there so that we have a roadmap to at least talk and think in those optimistic ways rather than just like accept it as a fait accompli that we're going to hit two degrees celsius global warming in the next 20 years and then you know bye bye beaches and all the rest of it um so uh like i said i listened to this on audiobook martha i know that you read this and we we'd been having some text exchanges where uh you didn't love the structure and i i do think it is a book that is um uh, the, the audiobook is much more rewarding than the actual listen, which is a rare, usually I'm like, it's basically the same, who cares? Uh, but in this one, the, the voice acting, all the rest might actually carry some weight. So what did you think of this? Um, yeah, let, let's hear your takes. Here was my frustration about it. I don't disagree with, like, I, I agree with you that it is good to read books about the future that are optimistic. Like, I do think that we need that. What I struggled with was that this book is so close to our actual, like, lived universe. I think it starts in 2025. So. And, like, he, he is clearly trying to situate it with, he like, he, he is clearly trying to position it with, like, decisions and solutions that would be possible given the world that we live in now mm -hmm. however there are some pretty huge things that he never grapples with either by design or like i don't know if it was conscious omission or if he just or what like, had to yada yada it to like further advance the goal <clears throat> i mean for example he does not really address the fact that for any of this to work the billionaires in our like the billionaires and the big companies in our society would have to decide that preserving the environment is more important than making money. I like I, that is I that is one that of the huge 
that is one of the huge stumbling blocks to reversing climate change right now. And I did not feel that he satisfactorily addressed that. I think his solution to that was the carbon coin, which which is a, a big foundational element to this book. And, and you can sort of feel like it's maybe his the big idea he's trying to push. Um, but the idea of having a a cryptocurrency backed by carbon sequestration with a guaranteed rate of return allows corporations and billionaires to... Um, obviously, it doesn't solve the individual issue of, like, Elon Musk is just a maniac and is going to do whatever he wants on his own. But it, like... This is not a book about individuals. It's a book about structures. And structurally... I think he's arguing that a a carbon-backed cryptocurrency would incentivize that combined with heavy carbon taxing uh, would incentivize through a carrot and stick mechanic corporations at least to invest in the future to as they say go long on humanity instead of shorting humanity um, is a phrase that's said frequently in the book. Uh, this is probably us... where you're going to ask me to explain all this to you. Well. <laughs> So I actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to divert us for just a moment to discuss the blockchain because okay. either I don't understand it correctly or Kim Stanley Robinson doesn't understand it correctly because I thought that one of the big issues with cryptocurrency is that it is horrific for the environment. So I read about this cryptocurrency as that he is positioning as being like a saving grace and thinking, but I have been told and read about the huge amounts of greenhouse gases that the process by which you mine Bitcoin creates. Thanks. So God. like, I, I thought you were going to ask me to explain blockchain, which I could barely do, but I can actually answer this, this issue. Um, okay, please do. Because I, I had a really, I, I really struggled with this because my understanding of what this meant was so, so counter to what it is trying to accomplish in the book mm -hmm. that I, I assumed that I must be just like deeply, deeply wrong about what I understand this all to mean. So, um, I am going to preface this with saying that I know no more than the average blockchain investor in blockchain which means i know nothing about blockchain because none of them know anything anyway uh the way that bitcoin mining works and the reason why it's so destructive for the environment is that it's basically having computers like in order to mint or mine i'm using scare quotes here a new bitcoin computers have to run a ton of algorithms and come up with like the magic number i this is very fuzzy, and I don't actually know the mechanics behind it. But in order for a new Bitcoin to be discovered or to be created, um, mined, if you would, it takes a tremendous amount of processing power. And that is that is how Bitcoin creates scarcity. One of the one of the ways that you or something all currencies need, is a way a way to demarcate value, and one of the ways to do that is through scarcity. Um, if the U.S. Mint decided to just mint a billion dollars tomorrow, we'd have bad inflation, worse than now, because the value of each dollar would go down as more dollars enter the market. Um, 
the way Bitcoin prevents there being just a billion new Bitcoins appearing tomorrow is that in order for any new Bitcoins to appear, computers just have to run a ton of processing, like, units, um, crunch a bunch of algorithms, and that's how new Bitcoins get created. The carbon coin that Robinson is proposing here doesn't use that mechanism. It uses a, it, it is backed by central banks around the world, um, which we can get into whether that's realistic, but um, in this, it's it's basically a form of fiat money where the central banks say we we support this, and the way that we mint or mine new coins is through proof of carbon sequestration. So rather than having a bunch of computers just churning out algorithms, uh, like just doing a ton of processing to get a new coin, the way you'd get a new coin in this is someone says, ah, oh, you've sequestered one ton of carbon. You get one coin. There is a new coin in the system, uh, and it's actually fine if corporations decide to go crazy and just sequester a ton of carbon and, like, cash out, because that means we've sequestered a ton of carbon. It's a win-win. Like, this, this currency, the more of this currency exists, the more good we're doing for the planet. So it is not bad if you have a, a massive flux of currency all of a sudden, uh, because... Um, Saudi Arabia has a coup, overflows, overthrows the Saudis, and the new ruling uh, military junta decides to keep all its oil assets in the ground and cash out into carbon currency uh, and get, you know, billions of carbon coin through through not pumping oil. Um, so it, it, it comes down to the process of how does one generate a new coin? And in this version, it's through proof of carbon sequestration, and through Bitcoin and others, it's just through doing a bunch of computer processing cycles. Does that explain? I guess then I don't understand how we can also call it cryptocurrency. Uh, the, the crypto <laughs> part is the, um, is the, like, so the, like, blockchain and all the rest of it is just a way to keep track of things. It's a unique digital signature that follows the exchange of that coin here i'm getting really on thin ice um in terms of my knowledge base but like crypto and blockchain literally is just a way to describe a a like a basically a unique identifying tag on this item that we're calling a a, a crypto coin um that follows it around everywhere and makes it therefore you know you can you can use it however you want but it is it is proven through basically like handshake protocols and and testing and being like oh you have the eight million digit i'm making that up like eight million digit num unique number that proves that you are this unique coin we can trace back every interaction you ever had uh, back to its founding source and that's how we know that you are a legitimate coin and not a uh counterfeit coin uh, humans don't do this this is all happening constantly and instantly through you know computer processing um but that's all that cryptocurrency is and blockchain is you can create a crypto coin backed by anything theoretically like the u.s government could create u.s crypto coin right now backed by the u.s dollar um it's just a new different way to track financial resources and goods using um uh cryptographic like lock and key sort of systems to prove identification um and uh like to prove validity 
Uh, and I and that is the extent of my knowledge. Do not ask me any further <laughs> questions about that. <laughs> I, I'm sure that I'm sure that act, act, actual crypto people will be like you said eight things wrong in that sentence, but um, I'm pretty sure it's close enough to get the job done. And I don't want to talk to actual cryptocurrency people, yes. so it all holds out. Yes, indeed. Um, let us turn instead to the fact that somebody who is um, very vocal about their socialism, um, let us talk about the faith that he has in government entities. <laughs> Socialists love government entities. Uh... I don't know. I just, I also struggled with the fact that this book posits, and I mean, I think that it's right. I think that if, if we are to accomplish, um, like engineering, the engineering of improving our climate, our climate, it has to happen at the level of all of these large government institutions. Robinson just has a lot more faith in that happening than I do. Yeah. He definitely yada yada is like, it's 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 interesting because he almost doesn't even grapple with government entities in a way. Like he goes for there isn't a lot of discussion about federal laws. There's a lot of um national banks, you know, being important for crypt for for this carbon coin. So like we have to get, you know, the US Fed and the European Union's uh, central bank and Chinese bank and uh, you know all the rest of it on board. And he sort of says that they're the real power brokers, but it doesn't matter. Like, at no point is there a big push for the U.S. government to pass carbon legislation, um, because I don't think he believes it would happen, and I don't think it's going to happen. So he sort of I looks don't think at, it is either. Right, like, he's looking at big-scale stuff at national bank levels to carrot-and-stick corporations, uh, and then he's looking at small-scale, you know, he's looking at terrorist attacks to carrot and stick mostly stick you know airlines and shipping from you know to to go green and then he's looking at very small scale things like he there are many pieces throughout this where he's he's talking about you know uh like the Mondragon system in uh the Basque region uh, which is sort of like a cooperative corporation system he's talking about um you know uh, community organized agriculture and just even green agriculture, sort of a back to the, like what's going on in uh, uh, Kerala and, and similar places. And uh, many of the things that he's pointing out as examples are things that currently exist. Like Mondragon is a is a cooperatively owned corporation in the Basque region that is exactly like he describes it. Um, and so he's in a lot of those interstitials. I think he's trying to point right now to solutions that currently exist but not at scale and is trying to push us to think about how we might be able to scale them up and do things like you know a one to ten income uh uh you know ratio between the highest paid and lowest paid uh, or one to ten lowest paid to highest paid you know person in a in any corporation which is uh laughable here right now in the u.s and would not be something that would be done through legislation but would be done through, you know, collective action, bargaining, yada, 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 in the most optimistic timeline that you can think of. Because I don't think it's going to happen here anytime soon. Um. Yeah, I, and this again is part of the problem that I had with the book. Like, it's it's too close. It is positing solutions that are too big and taking place too close. Like, it's too quick. 
yeah, it's it's too close to what is actually happening, which only makes me focus on how unrealistic I think his proposed solutions are. Yeah, uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama, who wrote uh, The End of History and The Last Man, which was like a seminal work of the 90s, um, had a pretty, I think, accurate critique of the book, which is, quote, Robinson posits the most optimistic possible political developments at every turn. And, every single time. And yeah, and there were many instances where I'm like, oh, that's a really cool idea. Too bad it will never, ever happen. Oh, it's happening in this book? Oh, well, okay. Uh, like, <laughs> I guess we're going forward on that one. And if given that outcome, then sure, I'll accept the next outcome that's equally optimistic. Um, but I do think that it's important to have a book like this that is radically optimistic or at least radically um, like showing you a possible alternative world to strive for and not just showing you a dystopia and not also and is more grounded in the real world, unlike Pacific Rim, because like Pacific Rim, great movie, very optimistic. We can come together to fight the giant monsters uh, by building giant robots and punching them. Awesome. Whole world united. I'm on board. This is one where it's like through through many of the, the smaller chapters where he's presenting um you know, currently existing alternative structures to the global capitalist system as currently written. And through presenting this wildly optimistic vision of the future, he gives you something to click into, grab onto, hold as something to fight for, which I think is missing oh. in both dystopian works and in um, wildly impossible Pacific Rim type works. And I think what I struggle with is that it does not read to me like an optimistic view of the future. It reads to me as a rose-colored view of the now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because of what now we are experiencing, I think I found that more frustrating than I did inspirational. Also, I read an interview with him where he called fantasy, where he said that he thinks fantasy is trash, and that just made me think that he is perhaps a jerk. Hmm, interesting. Uh, did not know, like, whatever. He writes all sorts of sci-fi. Uh, sci-fi is basically fantasy. It's fine. That just means that he hasn't read enough fantasy. <laughs> He he said the the quote was like I don't read fantasy. It's like oh well fine. I mean like whatever he is. It it, it I just He's, wanted to sneak no, that hey, in there was, because it makes me Waukegan. mad. <laughs> he was born in Waukegan. Um. He's he's 70 years old. Last time he read fantasy, I'm wildly speculating. He was probably 20. The fantasy back then wasn't necessarily the best. Uh, so he's, you know, go read some N.K. Jemison, you know. <laughs> Ooh, sidebar, did you see the sequel to The City We Became got announced? I did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, very excited about that. <laughs> Uh, apparently his, uh, uh, going back to Robinson, apparently his doctoral thesis was on the novels of Philip K. Dick. Uh, so do with that as you will. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't vibe with this one. I, part of it was the writing style. Like I, I really enjoy kind of patchwork. Like I, I enjoy in theory, the style choices he was making, but just the style and the tone of the writing I, I didn't vibe with. Um, the reason why I was worried about you not vibing with it was like listening to the audiobook 
the voice actors were incredible. It's a full cast situation. But some of them, it's just, you're, you're listening to it and it's like, hmm, you kind of sound like an asshole. Uh, like, <laughs> and, and listening to it, it's like, that's fine. You're like, you're super into glaciers or whatever. So you're gonna, you're gonna sound like that and whatever. But reading it, I could, I could see you just being like, I, wow, this guy's just an asshole. Uh, you know, not, not enjoy it. I did, I did enjoy the stuff with the glaciers. Mm-hmm. That was, that was, I, I believe that that is an idea that has been proposed like in our in our real world that we live in, like this, he is a hard sci-fi guy these days. So a lot, like I think everything in this book either currently, excuse me, either currently exists or um, has been proposed. I don't think he's making up anything whole cloth. Uh, um, but yeah, I enjoyed the stuff with the glaciers. I thought that was really interesting. I liked the kind of on the ground stuff. Much more than I liked the you, like, like now the, our, the LA now flood. our conclave is meeting. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Like you, you like the LA flood or the um uh the habitat corridor through Montana. Yeah. Yeah. I did too. All that stuff was really fun. And like it was it was a fun like we talked about like the LA flood through the POV of someone who like was in it. And then we never really talk about it again. It's like, yeah, this was a a thing that happened to LA, and then it's a uh, ne- next thing, next event that happens. Uh, whereas well, I, another I book think, could be like a focal moment. Yeah, and I think that what he is doing with the story worked best for me when he gets like on the ground with actual people, mm-hmm. and he loses me during the like hammering out of policy stuff because that those are the points where I'm like. Well, it wouldn't really work that way. Mm, sure, sure. You're like, I fully believe that this is what it would be like to be in a, you know, major African but, city that is going through a drought. Or like this tiny little Montana town that's been offered a buyout to like move to oh Minnesota or wherever. One of my fa- like I so I this was the second time listening to this audiobook and I forgot how much that section like really vibed with me. Uh mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, those were the pieces where I could really sort of revel in like, oh yeah, we're making progress. We're doing stuff. <laughs> uh, like me, did you not care about like the the poem of the photon or whatever? Or like, here's a, here's a oh, little yeah, carbon those... molecule and it's life. Yeah, those parts I was like, mm, no, no, Robinson, this is not <laughs> what we're here to do. You yeah. can, what? yeah, what is happening here? It's like, this is a flight of fancy, but. Do we need this? It's a flight of fancy? fancy in a book that is otherwise like so like grounded. I don't Yeah, like Or like nitty gritty. Yeah, it was poetic in a book that otherwise had no room for poetry. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Alright, well I'm I'm glad that I was able to at least make you read this. Uh this is uh I I listened to this book for the first time. Who, what year is it? It's 2022. I think last summer. Yes. So I started listening to this book while I was going on walks either last summer or two summers ago during a big old heat wave. So I was listening to the opening chapter about the Indian heat wave as it was 95 degrees and humid as I was walking around. Um, and I was like, hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And, and then it's been basically living rent-free in my head in one way or another since then, so I'm glad I was able to A, return to it, uh, experience it again, and B, uh, make someone else experience it, and then talk to them about it a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a little I... bummed. Sorry? I was going to say, I, I don't think this is a book without flaws. I th I take all of your criticisms and basically agree with them. But on the other hand, so much of it like struck me in such a, a, a visceral way. I think because it is the only optimistic piece of near future I've like consumed recently. Um, everything else is pretty dystopic, and also the world we live in is pretty dystopic. So like this this life raft, you know, of of like, ooh, here are some ideas that might lead to something, maybe. I, I just sort of glommed onto. I'm glad for you. I'm bummed that I did not listen to it because I, I don't think I would spend the time to read this again. Mm -hmm. And I think I probably would have enjoyed it more on audio. So, But the wait for that was like 16 weeks. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you could try listening to it 16 weeks from now, and by that point you'll have forgotten all of it. Skip, skip through the parts nope. you don't want. <laughs> I'm moving on to other books. No time to go back. Uh, well, anything else you want to talk about uh, about these two works, either together or individually, or should we start wrapping up? Um, the only thing I want to say is that my husband sent me a TikTok today of somebody lying face down on the ground and her roommate asking her what's wrong, and she said, "I watched Pacific Rim again." The robots defeat the monsters with the power of love. And I said, how did you know that I just rewatched Pacific Rim? <laughs> oh, In case you wanted to know how strong this really is, my brand. <laughs> amazing. I mean, yeah, it's Pacific Rim is a perfect film, so. All right. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to wrap up uh, a nice punchy but we agree but disagree analysis on the book and a double thumbs up on uh the movie um so unless there's anything else you do want to add no i'm good cool well thank you all so much for listening you can find us on apple Podcasts, soundcloud stitcher google play spotify anywhere else fine podcasts are found please uh like, subscribe, rate, review, whatever the words are we're supposed to say these days. I don't know. Listen to our podcast. Tell other people about the podcast. Subscribe or follow the podcast. Give us five stars. How, whatever that means on your podcatcher of choice, do those. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DYDYH Podcast. That's Did You Do Your Homework Podcast. Uh, Martha is in charge of updating those accounts. Uh, you can also follow us on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can also follow us on Facebook by searching for "Did You Do Your Homework?" podcast, or also by deleting your Facebook because um, Mark Zuckerberg bad. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that our Twitter updates automatically when I upload the new episodes, um, but otherwise things have been real quiet there because I don't know um, if that's true. Shoot. I mean. Oh, sorry. Uh, By which I mean, I don't know if that's true. Uh, okay. That, that, um, yeah, yes, that, that is like, a... Our social media has been very quiet because uh, <laughs> I don't get paid to do this. Uh -huh. And the things I do get paid for have been keeping me Taking real busy. Priority. Yeah. Uh, you can also email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, 
if you have any questions or ideas or topics you want to hear us talk about or homeworks you want to hear us talk about or anything else you want to say. Um, Martha, what else are you plugging? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on all the social media at Magical Martha. Um, I update my personal feeds much more frequently than I update the show feeds. Um, mostly I'm on Instagram because I can post photos of my guinea pigs and look at other people's photos of guinea pigs, and it makes me happy. <laughs> um, I did a limited run uh, video series with friend of the show Dan Carlin on his YouTube channel, SOOL Media, where we talked about all of the um, Oscar Best Picture nominees. This is slightly less relevant now that the Oscars are over, but if you are desperate to hear my thoughts on the power of the dog, you can certainly go take a look at that. Oscars were pretty uh, banal this year, right? No, no big events, no weird things. That nothing we'd still shocking be talking about. Yeah, nothing shocking happened at all. Yeah. Although at some point. I would legitimately, we never, he and I never got a chance to do our wrap up episode mm. for the Oscars. Like and post, I would legitimately post, uh, Oscar episode. Yeah. Like a yeah. post show. Um, but I would legitimately like to talk to somebody at some point about how I enjoy the fact that the best picture selection ultimately was a movie about the way that people love each other and how it's about, like a family trying to figure out the best way to love and support each other. And how I think that that is a really nice message to take away from last year. My, my joking response is you're talking about power of the dog, right? Yes, correct. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Dune. A movie about a family trying to find out how to, yeah, Dune. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> a family trying to find out how to love and support each other. <laughs> Um, uh, I also do another show on this very same podcast feed with Pete's wife, Marin called Love Ya, where we watch an adult rom-com or a piece of teen cinema and then talk about it in detail. Our most recent episode was about the new Jenny Slate and Charlie Day movie on Charlie Amazon Day Prime called I, called I Want You Back. And our next episode, which I am now realizing is also a Disney Plus ve uh, vehicle, so I'm going to have to figure that one out, uh, is called Better Nate Than Ever. All right. We can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Um, and, yeah, I guess occasionally posting links to my Instagram, which has pictures of my pug. Uh, I thought about deleting He's... Instagram right before I got a pug, and I'm like, I need to keep this for the dog pictures, so there we no, go. No, delete everything else, keep Instagram, it's the only one that makes me happy. It's all ads these days, but also I get to post pictures of my dog, so it's fine. Um, he, uh, goes to daycare now once a week, and at his daycare there's another pug named Brad, who lives in our neighborhood, and so we get <laughs> double the pugs. <laughs> um, I love I love animals with people names. Yes, yes. Brad looked like Ozzy is a derpy little. He's a big pug, but he's a derpy boy. Brad looks like he's seen some things. <laughs> like he's, oh, no. he's, he's got a thousand yard stare. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you some pictures afterwards of <laughs> from incredible from the daycare. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, uh, next episode of this podcast, we are we're go, we're doing a curveball here. Uh, we're talking about mid aughts historical conspiracy theories. You know how conspiracy theories now are stupid and bad in QAnon. Well, back in the mid aughts, it was a glorious time when we could be more talking about like the Freemasons and yes. the Declaration of Independence and when what we, if Jesus thought- had a magic cup or something. When we thought that the dollar bill had clues to like <laughs> treasure the of youth or something. <laughs> yes, yes. That was fun, wasn't it? So much fun. So we're gonna be talking about uh as predicted by those two examples, we're gonna be watching the delightful Jerry Bruckheimer film National Treasure. Uh, and we're going to be reading the, haven't read it since it came out, a blockbuster novel, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Um, just really, it. who knows if, if Da Vinci Code still holds up. National Treasure definitely still holds up for what movie it, it is and knows it is. Um, uh, the Da Vinci Code barely, quote unquote, held up when it was released. You know, that's so. fair. That's <laughs> fair. <laughs> uh, is it tolerable now is the question. Uh, but we're going to be looking into those, yeah, those that weird lightning in a bottle mid-aughts historical conspiracy theory nonsense time. Uh, and, and maybe asking some bigger questions about those or, or maybe not. Maybe just going along for the ride. This uh, is the literal definition for me of one for you, one for me, <laughs> one for you, one for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So until then, and that's going to come out in two weeks. Uh, until then, enjoy doing that homework and class dismissed. Oh, yeah. Jeez, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I, I got back from my run at 745 and I'm like, I can either smash tacos in my face and then have the itis <laughs> or I can wait till after we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Talk to you in a bit. All right. All right bye. Yeah, bye.